and all to do with it, its services, its priesthood, and much else, and the final preparation for the coming of the Messiah. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are the last words of God under the Old Covenant. They are the conclusion, they are the conclusion of prophecy in the Old Testament. Until the forerunner of the Messiah, Christ himself, uh, was to appear, that is John the Baptist. And it is this special position given to these three books that is so important for us and ought to claim our attention. It's therefore somewhat um, remarkable that they have not always been given this attention. People spend a lot of time in the other prophets, but you don't normally find such a lot of attention is given to Haggai or Zechariah or Malachi. And yet, what the Lord has said to the church at the end of the old dispensation is really, obviously, of great importance to the church at the end of the new dispensation. For the simple reason that it contains very important principles of the end time. At the end of every dispensation and the beginning of a new one, there is a winding up and concluding of what belongs to the old and a pre preparation, uh, a making aware of what is about to be brought in with the new. And therefore, it is of tremendous importance for us to understand what exactly the Holy Spirit uh, is seeking, has sought to say through these three prophets. These three books need to be read alongside Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. They are not very long books, and they are books that uh, can easily be read, and you ought to be able to take the short books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther and read them alongside of it. And as I trust we go on in this, these studies, uh, I think you will find they begin to make sense, and they throw light one upon the other. It's very interesting to note in Ezra and Nehemiah, particularly, that in the three stages of the return, you remember the return was in three stages, as in fact the exile had been in three stages, completed in 586. The return was in three stages. You've got those uh, three stages clearly defined in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The first under Zerubbabel in 536, the second under the leadership of Ezra in 458, and the final one under the leadership of Nehemiah in 445. Now it is very interesting that in these three stages, if you can, those of you who were in the studies, uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will remember that in the first stage it was the outward, the more outward character of uh, the life of God's people which was stressed. 
you remember, it was what we call church ground. It was the cross as it works out corporately. It was a corporate, Jesus Christ as the corporate foundation of the house, of the actual preparation of the material to be built. You remember, all that was contained in the first stage. In the going back to Jerusalem, the clearing of the foundation, the erecting of the altar, then the repair of the foundation, and finally, after much battle backwards and forwards, the completion of the temple. But in the second return, it, if you will remember, cast back your memories, it was not the outward character so much of the life of God's people that was emphasized, but the inward moral character. And you will remember that under the second return under the leadership of Ezra, it was all to do with mixed marriage, all to do with the keeping of God's word, of, of, an, of an intelligent, a spiritually intelligent understanding of God's law, not just keeping it in the letter, but keeping it in the spirit. And in the third stage under the leadership of Nehemiah, you will remember it was a summing up and a conclusion of the previous two lessons. It was the rebuilding of the walls, the, uh, the final last stage of the recovery, when the walls were built, and as it were, uh, everything was uh, clearly defined. Walls define something. They define for us the city, Zion, in which God dwells. They defined where his house was to be found. You see, there's much else that we could talk about in the way uh, that, uh, that the walls symbolize. But here is the interesting fact that emerges this evening. In these three prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, two of whom were um, bound up with the first return, one of whose Zechariah, whose ministry probably went through until the beginning of the next return, and then finally the third, Malachi, who was bound up more with Nehemiah. These three prophets, the first one stresses the outward character of God's people, that is, the absolute necessity to the very life and existence of God's people of the house of God. God you've got to have the house of God, Haggai really tells us. You lose your very meaning. You lose the hub of your life, personally. All your, your own personal life, your family life, your business life. He, he, in this, the short, small compass of this book, he tells us all bound up with the house of God. Our attitude to the house of God. Our relationship to it. All bound up with it. And he stresses very much... Um, the necessary outward character of the life of God's people. Then you come to Zechariah, and he goes on the inside. And most of, of Zechariah is taken up with the inward character of God's people as the dwelling place of the Lord. And then finally, when you come to Malachi, you find he sums up the lessons of the previous two prophets, and not only sums them up, but adds some more, underlining certain things before, so that finally we are prepared for the coming 
of the Lord. It's as if Malachi says to us, Now then, have you learnt the lesson of Haggai? Have you learnt Zechariah's lesson? Now I want to underline it all and tell you this. These are the things you need if you're going to endure and abide the day of the Lord's coming. Now I believe that's very interesting in its way. And I think before we go any further, as we are, first of all, taking a sort of general introduction to these three books, we ought to make an especial note. We ought to note that these prophecies have been fulfilled. The prophecies, many of the prophecies contained in these three books, have been fulfilled in Christ and in his first coming, his first advent. Nevertheless, it is also clear that they look on to the second coming. Now, this is a feature of very much prophecy in the Old Testament. Once it was explained to me in a way that I found it often helpful to recollect. When you're standing on a high mountain and you look away in the distance, you see range after range after range of mountains. But the far distant mountains, they all seem to be one upon the other. Do you understand? When you get to that mountain, perhaps the one of your choice, and the one behind it, there may be a day or two's walk between the two. But from your distant view, they seem as if they belong to the same range. They're blended and melted into one another. And so it is often with the prophets that as they viewed the coming of the Lord, they saw his first advent and his second advent, and to them it seemed as if they were all part of one movement. And so again and again in the prophets you find that they, they say much about the first, and then they jump. in the first advent of the Lord Jesus, the first coming of the Lord Jesus, have yet to be more completely and fully fulfilled in his second coming. Now, it may be that one or two are a little bit um, concerned about this, so I think we might just look up uh, one or two instances in these three books. Uh, the first is in Haggai 2 and verse 6. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea, and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the precious things, or the, the things desired of all nations, or the desire of all nations, shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord. Now, all scholarship, all fundamental scholarship, has taken this, um, rightly, I think, um, to be a messianic prophecy. In fact, all modern and fundamental uh, scholarship has taken this portion to be a messianic prophecy, fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus um, in, and in Pentecost. But if you turn to Hebrews... Chapter 12, verse 26. 
This is how the writer to the Hebrews quotes Haggai, whose voice then shook the earth, that is the voice of God. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. So here you have two, uh, the two comings of the Lord, prophesied by Haggai. Um, in these verses. And then again, if you look at Haggai chapter 2, verse 20, the word of the Lord came the second time unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms, I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations, I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet. For I have chosen thee. Now, for as far as we know, that was not fulfilled in Zerubbabel himself. There may have been some small, partial um, fulfillment in Zerubbabel. In fact, Zerubbabel vanishes off the face of the historic record. We don't know quite what happened to him. But again, all scholarship, all scholarship, has taken this to be a messianic prophecy of the Lord Jesus, looking beyond Zerubbabel, who was of the line and house of David. And if you look up in the genealogies of the Lord Jesus, you will find Zerubbabel there. And therefore they look on beyond Zerubbabel, quite rightly, to the Lord Jesus, who was born of the line of Zerubbabel, the house of David. And they see in Christ, the one whom God has chosen, who has all authority and power in his hands. He is the signet ring of God. There is nothing that God does that is not stamped with the authority of Christ, through Christ. In Christ, by Christ, God has done all. If you turn over, uh, of course, if you remember the Lord, what the Lord said um, in his own words, he says, now is the prince of this world judged. He speaks of the Father having given all things, having given all things into his hands. He says, to, before he ascends, he has been given all authority and power, both in heaven and on earth. And we are told again and again, of course, in the epistles, how all things are under his feet. And yet, you see, there still remains, yet it goes on to the second coming of our Lord. If you look in Revelation 11, verse 15, there you have the final act played out. Revelation 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounded and there followed great voices in heaven, and they said... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So you see, you've got again the two advents of the Lord somehow blended together in this prophecy. Now there is just one further one from Malachi, which has always caused great discussion and probably will amongst you. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger... And he shall prepare the way 
before me. Then, chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers. Now, turn over to what the Lord Jesus had to say about that. Mark 9, verse 11. They asked him, saying, How is it that the scribes say that Elijah must first come? He said unto them, Elijah indeed cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be set at naught? I say unto you that Elijah is come, and they have also done unto him whatsoever they would, even as it is written of him. Now if you will turn to Matthew's account of that, Matthew 11, <coughs> Verse 14, if you are willing to receive it, this is Elijah, that is to come. There's very great discussion as to what the Lord exactly meant. Did he mean that John the Baptist was in fact the fulfillment of that prophecy, the complete and only fulfillment of that prophecy? Or was he suggesting that um, uh, one would yet come in the power and spirit of Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord should dawn. You see, here you have seemingly anyway, as far as I can see, um, this, this, these two advents blended into one. And you have the same features in both. The forerunner of the coming of the Lord uh, in the person of John the Baptist. And yet, somehow... Something tells me that before that great and terrible day comes, there's going to be either another forerunner or there's certainly going to be a witness. You get it in the book of Revelation with the two great witnesses that stand before the Lord and prophesy over the whole earth before the final great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So I wonder whether you will just underline what I've said in this special note, that the, these prophecies, um, they not only, they've not only been fulfilled in the coming of Christ at his first advent, but they do obviously point on to the second as well. And this underlines what I've said about the importance of these three books for us. Now we come to the book of Haggai. Haggai is the first of these three books, and it is the tenth of the Minor Prophets. In many ways, it has been a strangely neglected book. For instance, you will not find many uh, volumes written on the book of Haggai. Go upstairs and try and find them if you wish. Find many on Isaiah, you'll find many on Daniel, volume after volume on Daniel, and you'll find much on Ezekiel, but you'll find hardly anything at all. You will search through all the, the hundreds of volumes to find something upon this little book of Haggai. It is a strangely neglected book. Possibly it's been due to its rather prosaic style. Or it might be due to its smallness. People tend always to overlook the small prophets, as if they're not very significant or valuable. Or it may be that it is seemingly all centred 
in a building programme that is part of past history and therefore has very little to say to us in the 20th century. Yet, and this is the point, it deals with the spiritual conflict that rages over the recovery and completion of God's house. A work as great almost as the original construction of the house. I say as great almost, if not as great. Because when you read the book of um, Ezra and Nehemiah, you realize the tremendous, tremendous odds that were against that people ever getting back to the promised land or ever rebuilding the house. Even Solomon didn't have that battle over the house of the Lord. He was at the zenith of, of Israel's greatness and wealth and glory. And Israel had something of an empire in those days. And uh, in many ways it wasn't quite so hard to marshal the material and the workmen and the building materials and so on that were needed for the construction of the first great temple. No, this job, this, this construction of the second temple was as great a, uh, a job as the original, if not in some ways greater. And the book of Haggai deals with the false attitudes, now mark it, the false attitudes and the false ideas of God's own children. It deals with the various causes of despondency and depression and failure. It's of course true that the house described in this book of Haggai is, is, was not um, of the magnificent proportions of Solomon's temple. Now here's an important point. Nevertheless, although it may not have had the same size, the same wealth and the same glory that Solomon's temple had, nevertheless it was the temple, although entirely rebuilt by Herod, it was nevertheless materially the same temple which finally received the Messiah. That's the point. In that its latter glory exceeded the former. It saw the fulfillment of the whole history of Israel within its wall. It ushered in that of which it was but a shadow. So maybe it was much smaller. Maybe the elders wept. The young men and the young people rejoiced with great jubilation as the house was reared. But it says the elders who remembered the former house in all its glory, they wept and they wailed because it was so small and so mean in comparison with what they had seen. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it was the building, though rebuilt entirely by Herod, as I've said, that actually saw the fulfillment of God's promise and of the very meaning of its building. Now, here's the point. We also need to look for a restoration in our day of the Church of God 
Maybe not in those the great in the not perhaps maybe not in the same proportion the same proportions as the early church. You see, people come to us and they say, you, you, surely you're barking up the wrong tree. You want to see a recovery of the church? It's impossible. You want to see that early church expressed again in the twenty? It's impossible that we're not looking for that. We are looking for a restoration in principle of that which God first brought in at Pentecost. It, of course, will not be the same proportions. It will not be of the same size. It will not have the, uh, the same outward glory and significance. But, and this is the point, it will nevertheless be the church that receives the Lord of glory, finally. That restored remnant will be those who finally usher in the kingdom of the Lord. That's the point. Now this book is shattering in its frankness. Because anyone who's seen anything of the, of the purpose of God tends to get despondent and depressed. The whole point is this. It's easier to be with the majority in exile conditions than to be with a remnant in the land, uh, right out, as it were, for all that God wants. Much easier. For one thing, you don't have the discipline of the Lord. You see, the great majority were in exile in Babylon. They were having a very good time. They were prospering. They'd got their businesses. We, in fact, found out all kinds of things that showed to us that they had business firms and all the rest of it. They were getting on very well indeed. But these people, trying to build their own homes, they came under the most severe rebuke of the Lord. They came under a, a discipline which the majority didn't even have exercised upon them. You understand what I'm getting at? And therefore they were much more given to despondency. The others had no great uh, standard. The others had no great horizon. The others had no great objective. So they weren't so easily despondent or depressed. But these people had seen something of the purpose of God. They'd returned. They were out, as it were, on full limb, right out for all that the Lord wanted. And it was because of that that, th that this little book of Haggai was written. You see, Haggai is, to us, a most precious document. It has only 38 verses. But it is an unbelievably precious document, speaking only to those who have seen something of God's eternal purpose in Christ, and the battle that rages over it, and have committed themselves at no little cost to the realization and rec the recovery and realization of that purpose. For listen, we've got to face the fact that the house of God, the church, that temple of the Lord, as originally constituted at Pentecost, is today in ruins. You, you've got to face it. 
It's no good trying to talk about a marvellous invisible church that's all one, perfect and spotless. You know, it's, you can't, you can't get away from it. You've got to face the fact. This great conception of the Lord that, that he originally constituted by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost is in ruins. The whole thing's in ruins. There are middle walls of petition everywhere. We're divided into innumerable sects. The body of the Lord is churned up into so many segments all over the earth. You've got to, uh, you've got to recognize the fact. Well, then what shall we do? What shall we do? This is the question, isn't it? If we, if you and I have seen something, what the church is, what shall we do about it? Shall we ignore its ruin, as many try to, and just go on personally with the Lord? We can't do anything about it. Let's just pretend that the ruin doesn't exist. We'll go on personally with the Lord in our own little life. Or shall we settle down to this Babylonian state that exists amongst God's people, giving it our loyalty, supporting it, extending it? Developing it. So many people say, you mustn't leave a sinking ship. The whole point is, is, is it God's ship? Is it God's ship? Or are we giving uh, a loyalty to a Babylonian state of affairs which ought never to exist? I can imagine some of the arguments that must have taken place when some of the people were going back to the land and some of them were remaining in exile. And those who are remaining in exile say, well, what's the point of going back to the land? We've lost our national entity. We've lost our national government. We've lost our national status. Surely it's better for us to remain here and bear testimony for the Lord in this. But the whole point is this. All those promises through the prophets could not be fulfilled unless some went back to the land. Unless there was a recovery, how could the Lord come suddenly and be found in his temple? Unless the temple was rebuilt. How could there be a Galilee of the nations unless it was repopulated? How could there be a Bethlehem of Ephrata to which, out of which this great ruler would come unless someone went back and, and, and rebuilt it, repopulated it? So much else, you see. So we have these questions, what shall we do? Or as some minority, shall we, uh, shall we return, at least in theory and knowledge, and uh, accentuate the inward and spiritual nature of everything, and, and uh, forget the thorny problem of the outward? What shall we do? What should our attitude be? Now, it is just over this that the prophet Haggai is so helpful. It is for the, to answer these questions that he comes forward and speaks to us. Now, Haggai's style is very straightforward. It's straightforward and it's unadorned. 
to the point of dullness. So a lot of very rude things I've been reading in the last two days about poor Haggai's style. I don't know what he feels about it himself. But um, generally, uh, generally speaking, most seem to think that he has a dull style, prosaic style, a very uninteresting style, and so on and so forth. There's nothing very poetic about it. He, he's brief, he's terse, to the point of curtness, he's factual, and on the whole he's unemotional. We ought to note a rather striking phrase in um, Haggai 1, chapter 1, it is a very striking phrase actually, Haggai 1 and verse 13. This little phrase, the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message, I wonder if you've ever noticed that, isn't it an interesting phrase? And it's no, it occurs nowhere else in scripture, the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. Most remarkable little phrase. I'm going to leave it this evening and just you go away and think about it. Does it does it mean that here Haggai's just saying, I'm lost in the message of the Lord? I'm enveloped in the message of the Lord? It's a most unusual, a most striking little phrase. The Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. But here's a very interesting fact that goes alongside of it. There is no other prophet that so emphasizes the speaking of the Lord as does the prophet Haggai. Out of 38 verses, he 30 times emphasizes the fact that it is the word of the Lord. In the, in the few verses we read the scene, did you notice almost monotonous repetition of saith the Lord, saith the Lord, after almost every phrase, saith the Lord. Is this somehow bound up with the Lord's messenger in the message? I'll leave that to you to follow through. In the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, Psalm 138, you want to note these and read them, and Psalm 146 to 148 are associated with Haggai and Zechariah. It's very interesting if you read those psalms in the light of that. Tradition says that the Hallelujah Psalms, that's Psalm 146 to 148, which begin with Hallelujah and end with Hallelujah and have a lot of Hallelujahs in between, were first composed and sung at the opening of the Second Temple in the presence of Haggai and Zechariah, who led it. Lastly, in this introduction to this book, I think we should say that Haggai is quoted once in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. Now, can we say anything about, on the more technical side, about the authorship and date of this little book? Well, there are just one or two things we can say, if you'll bear with us on this rather more dry side. This book claims to be the word of the law by Haggai the prophet. Its claim is made again and again, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 20. It claims to be, all those times, the word of the law by Haggai the prophet. On the whole, most scholarship has accorded this book to Haggai. There is evidence for its genuineness in the mention of Haggai and Zechariah in Ezra, twice, in Ezra chapter 5 
and verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the, of the God of Israel prophesied they unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. And then in chapter 6 and verse 14, again, the elders of the Jews builded and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And then again, there, um, we might just say that the entire book of Ezra, except for one minor problem, which I won't mention this evening, but if anyone wants to have any more information about it, you can come and I'll let you have it. Otherwise, the whole book of Ezra accords entirely with um, the book of Haggai. There is some evidence, therefore, for the claim of Haggai to the authorship of this book. Also, there is more evidence in the way in which the book is interwoven with contemporary history. It is the first book that ever uses a Gentile king to date itself by. It uses um, the reign of Darius I of the Persian Empire um, a number of times. And what we know about the reign of Darius I agrees with everything we find in this book. So there's a little more evidence. We probably, of course, have only a precy of Haggai's ministry. I mean, 38 verses, not very much. Uh, over about four months. Um, in fact, it is very probable that here we have but the skeleton of what Haggai, uh, in fact, said. Some scholars would like to rearrange a few of the uh, verses, but most believe this book has a unity of meaning and theme. We, therefore, can accept the authorship of Haggai without any reservation. Now, what about the date? The prophecies are clearly dated. Again, Haggai 1, verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Haggai 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 20. You will see it's all dated by the second year of Darius. In fact, we are given more information than even the year. Most scholars again agree that Haggai can be dated with greater evidence for accuracy than any other portion of the Old Testament. We can, in fact, fix the date, which is more than we can normally do. We can actually fix the date, and nearly all of you have it, all schools of thought, to the year 520 B.C., two years after Darius I came to the throne of the Persian Empire. But listen, we can do even more, and this is really quite interesting, although I don't know how much it uh, uh, bears out. There might be some spiritual lessons some of you will gain from it as you study it. We can actually go further. We can tell you that these prophecies cover a period of exactly four months in 520 BC. The first was given on the first of the sixth month, which corresponds to our September. The second was given on the 21st 
of the seventh month, which corresponds to our October, and the last two were given on the 24th of the ninth month, which corresponds with our December. So we have the most amazingly uh, detailed uh, dating for this prophecy. Now, what do we know about the background of Haggai? This is where we shall end this evening. Um, I always feel somehow that you've been cheated if we don't get onto the key, but I'm afraid that I have um, um, restrained myself this evening and not tried to go that far. What do we know about the background of Haggai? We have no facts or details about Haggai at all except that he's called a prophet. We don't know anything about his personal background. We don't know anything about his family. We don't know what tribe, in fact, he came from. We don't know what occupation he had. We don't know whether he was poor or wealthy, whether he was from the peasant class or from the aristocracy. We know nothing at all about the prophet Haggai. His name, Haggai, means festive. And uh, according to Jeremy, and uh, it is thought that he may have received his name on some great feast day. But whatever it may have been, whether it was a feast day, someone else has pointed out that it is much more likely that he had godly parents. <coughs> and that in days of unbelievable sorrow and darkness in exile, they gave their son in faith, a name which spoke of the promises of God for the future. They called him my feast, or festive, in the joyful confidence of a return to the land where once again they would be able to keep the feast days in the house of the Lord. You must remember that even if they did give him this name on a feast day, they couldn't keep the feast very well. For they had no temple which sanctified the feast. So it was given in faith, however we look at it. And whatever way we might look at his name and the meaning of it, there is one thing that does, we can say with certainty, it was divinely prophetic. It is very interesting that this man had a name that was uh, in itself a prophetic word which was to be fulfilled in his own life and, and which he himself was going to be instrumental in bringing about. That's remarkable. Many believe that Haggai must have come from a priestly family or at least from temple circles, that is, some of those Levites who, worked, who weren't priests, but who worked in the temple. Tradition, and this is rather interesting, says that Haggai was born in Babylon of the tribe of Levi of the house of Aaron, which of course makes him a priest, and was buried amongst the priests at Jerusalem, finally. It also says that he returned with the first stage under the leadership of Zerubbabel, all that may well be likely, but we have no evidence. From the book, we get a picture of his character. As far as we can see, Haggai 
was a very balanced, sane man, such as we have some in the company here. Uh, very balanced and sane, not given to poetic flights of fancy or sudden emotional fiery outbursts, faithful, straight, and always keeping to the facts. Very true of Haggai. Although we can date the book very accurately, we cannot date the full period of Haggai's life other than very generally. Now, some would have us believe that from Haggai chapter 2 and verse 3, um, no, I'm sorry, I've got Haggai chapter 2 verse 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in its former glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes as nothing? Some would have us believe from that verse that, in fact, um, Haggai had seen the former temple. This would make him at least 75 to 80 years of age when he prophesied. But I cannot help but feel that the evidence for this assertion is very slender, so slender, that it is unworthy of any uh, real note. It's very much like my saying to you this evening, who among you saw the magnificence of Spurgeon's ministry? And someone saying, my word, obviously he lived then in the days of Spurgeon. He, he, he saw it. See, I, I don't think there's any ground there at all from that uh, verse of de deciding that uh, he had in fact seen the former house. It's much more likely that he was born in exile and that he returned with Zerubbabel in 536 BC. Um, and with that, of course, as I've already pointed out, tradition agrees. His contemporary and co-worker was Zechariah. Now, this is very interesting because I've put here uh, uh, on this board, this huge board, um, I've put uh, this second chart, the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. And if you can, I should copy it down because if you were to read it chronologically, you will be very interested. Because you will discover, you see, that Haggai gave two messages as recorded. Then Zechariah helped him and gave, him, gave the third uh, in the eighth month. So September and October, Haggai ministered, and in uh, um, November, uh, Zechariah ministered. Haggai came back in December uh, twice on the same day, and was followed twice by Zechariah later. Actually, there is two years' difference between the last but one and the last recorded prophecy. Then we have a number of prophecies in Zechariah that have no date at all. They're undated. But if you read that, you'll be very interested. And here's an interesting little point, that the two prophets seem to balance each other very remarkably. And if you read, you'll discover that. Um, how obviously the two of them work together. They, I should imagine, were not only co-workers, but great uh, friends as well. It's interesting how they're linked together. It is also probable that Haggai knew Daniel because Daniel was still alive when, if um, Haggai came back in 536 BC, Daniel was still alive. In fact, he was, 
as you know, but to rule the whole empire under Cyrus. So it is quite possible that Haggai would have known him. Haggai was the older of the two. We read in Zechariah, which we will take when we come to it, the Lord says, go, said the angel, go, run and tell the young man. So Zechariah was evidently a young man. Uh, it's possible that Zechariah, uh, that Haggai was an older man. Although we can say nothing about his personal background, uh, authoritatively, we can only just tell you these few things, we can find out a little of the general background. What was it? The general background of Haggai and Zechariah's day was that the great Babylonian empire, which had seemed so secure and which had lasted over thousands of years, literally, and it's one of the great miracles of ancient history, literally vanished overnight. One night, the great Babylonian empire was still there, and the next morning dawned, and it had gone forever, never again to reappear. And in its place had come in the next great ancient world empire, the Persian. It's always been a miracle quite how the Persians uh, uh, took the Babylonians by surprise. The old story is that they diverted the course of the river Euphrates and the soldiers went through into Babylon along the dried up river bed. But you of course know the story, don't you, of Belshazzar and the great feast and the way Daniel went in and said that right, he was brought in to read the writing on the wall that weighed in the balances and found wanting this night. The kingdom is rent from thee and given to the Medes and the Persians. Remember the story? And that very night, he hadn't given him a glass of water, will you? He's choking. Um, uh, and that very night, um, it happened. I don't want him rent away from us. <laughs> the Persians were quite different to the Babylonians. They believed in one great invisible creator. Uh, whereas the Babylonians believed in a whole great pantheon of idol gods. They believed that their great invisible creator was seen only in fire. And later on it, it formed itself into a clear, clearly defined religion that we know as Zoroastrianism. But then, of course, it wasn't that. They just believed in a great invisible being who was the creator of all. And therefore the Persians had a great affinity to the Jews, felt a great affinity with the Jews. They felt that of all the deported peoples, the Jews were closer to them in spirit than any others. Um, their policy was quite different from the Babylonians. The Babylonians had conquered, of course, all this territory that is uh, coloured green here, and their policy, rather like in the last war, was to deport captured peoples. They felt the easiest way to keep this vast empire under an iron-like uh, control was to deport people from their homelands and repopulate them, resettle them elsewhere. Persian policy was quite different. When they took over, they allowed all the deported peoples to return to their homelands. They gave them a certain amount of home rule, and they gave them complete religious freedom. Cyrus, the great Cyrus, who, of, uh, who was, had been 
whose coming had been prophesied by Isaiah centuries before, was one of the most gracious and enlightened emperors of ancient history. He is spoken highly of by everyone. Under him, and probably, and I often love to dwell on this, but I mustn't for time's going, um, under him and probably through the godly influence of Daniel, the uh, Jews, of course, remember, Daniel was the virtual ruler. You remember how it happened? They tried to get him into the lion's den, tried to destroy him, but uh, the lions wouldn't eat him because God shut their mouths. And instead, all those that had conspired against Daniel, all the other rulers, all the other sort of big authorities in the government, were all thrown to the lions who ate them with great relish. In other words, what happened was that, that Daniel was left in supreme and sole control of the whole empire when Cyrus came onto the scene. And Cyrus, being a gracious and enlightened man, I have no doubt at all that when he saw what must have been the most venerable person to look at, for he was a very old man, godly and venerable, he must have been immediately drawn to the, to the person of Daniel. Here was a man trained in, in government, and it seemed here was a man given for such a time. So, of course... The reins of government were almost wholly in the hands of Daniel. He was the virtual ruler. And I cannot help but feel that he must have influenced very greatly the, the gracious and enlightened Cyrus. Cyrus not only allowed the Jews to return to their land, but he commanded the rebuilding of the house of God at Jerusalem by a royal decree. Surely one of the most remarkable things in scripture, that an unsaved monarch by royal decree should command the building of the house of God. And not only that, but he put at their disposal all uh, uh, funds for, for the obtaining of the materials, um, letters of authority to get the whole job underway, and also he restored all the vessels of the house of God which had been taken away in the captivity. Cyrus was followed by his son Hambathes, um, who reigned until 522, and who in turn was followed by Darius the first in 518. Darius I was a remarkable man, and it was under his reign that the Persian Empire was first thoroughly organized. By his second year, now mark it, by his second year, and that was the year Haggai began to minister, he had crushed all rebellions and imposed a really strong, established Persian rule to the, ex to the far extent of the whole empire. Now, if you know, if you want to go back home and read Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're interested, and if you're going to feel it might be helpful to you, you will discover there that a great battle was going on to try and stop the Jews from building the house of God. And uh, when Cambyses came to the throne, they, they knew that he wasn't of the same character as his father Cyrus, 
And he, in fact, stopped the work of the house of God. It all stopped. But when Darius came, he was the one who set it all in motion again. He looked up the records, found out that a royal decree, and you know, when a Persian royal decree was made, it's a thing that must not be altered. Remember? The law of the Medes and the Persians, which, which must not be altered. Uh, he found when the decree had been made, he couldn't do anything about it, so he helped them on with the job. Then, uh, what about the more immediate background? With this we shall end. What was um, Haggai's immediate background? He was back in Jerusalem. We know that from the prophecies. His ministry. The remnant had returned. Some 50,000, that's quite a number, had returned with the first uh, group under Zerubbabel. When they got back... The first thing they had done was to clear the temple site, which was overgrown with some 50 years of rubbish and weed and everything else, overgrowth, undergrowth. They had built an altar, they had offered sacrifices to the Lord, and they had repaired the foundation. Then, as they had started to build, the work had been stopped by the Samaritans. Now that's why, from that day forward, the Jews have always hated the Samaritans. Samaritans and Jews would never have any dealings with each other. It all began just now. The Samaritans, you see, were the Jews that had been left in the land. They were the very, very poor peasant stock left in the land because the Babylonians thought they were only too glad they wouldn't cause any trouble. You see, now we've taken away all the aristocracy and all the professional classes. These poor peasants would be only too glad to be rid of them. What they did was they moved in a whole lot of other people from the other side of the empire and got them to intermarry. That was the beginning of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans were anathema to the Jews. They thought they were the most terrible people because they compromised everything and been, as it, they felt, traitors to their country. Now, the Samaritans wanted to help the Jews in the rebuilding of the house of God, but the Jews wouldn't have it. And because of that, they became uh, violent enemies. And they used every means available to stop first the house being built, then Ezra's reforms, and finally the walls of Jerusalem being completed. You know the story, it's a marvellous story, of all that backward and forward battle that raged to try and stop it from being completed. Now, when the Samaritans raised their first big objection to their bitter antagonism, officially the work had to stop on the uh, temple. But in actual fact, that was not the reason why the work stopped. Haggai tells us the reason. It was because of the lethargy and the spiritual lethargy and lukewarmness of God's people. Now, isn't that interesting? You see, God's people could look to the official, they could say, well, look here, you see, I mean, look, it stopped. It has to stop, you see. We've got to stop, officially. But in actual fact, from God's point of view, it wasn't that at all. It was their own attitude that had brought about the stop. The remnant were weary, and I believe this will uh, get an echo in many hearts, if not all our hearts, in this room. The remnant were very weary. They'd gone back to the land. They'd gone back with very great hopes. Now they've become weary. Sixteen years have gone by. 
and they were very weary indeed. They were weary with the continual opposition and battle and conflict over God's house and God's land. They were, they were weary with this continual obstreperous obstinacy of the Samaritans uh, that surrounded them on every side. They were weary with the hardness of their circumstances because, you see, the land had been allowed to go to wreck and ruin and somehow or other it just wearied them trying to get it back to fertility, trying to get it to yield good harvest. They were weary with their circumstances, with the hardness of them. They were weary with the discipline of the work. You see, they not only had to try and get the land back into one, they not only had to build their own homes, but there was the house of God, there was the city of God, there were the walls of Jerusalem, there was the land itself. They were weary with the discipline of the work, having to put God first, having to put the things of God first. They were weary with sacrifice. They were weary with making do. They'd gone back believing that to be faithful to the Lord meant blessing. And now they were weary with having to make do with a lot of difficulties and hardship and so on. So you can understand it, can't you? It's the same here in this company and in many other companies. They were all very glad for an excuse to stop the work. And when finally it was stopped, they wouldn't have stopped themselves, but when finally it was officially stopped, they all heaved a great sigh of relief and got on with a lot of other things that they felt needed doing. The result was they all spent their energy and time upon their own homes and upon their own businesses, upon their families and upon everything else along that line. You see, we have to remember that whereas in times past the prophets had had to warn God's people continually about too much attachment to outward things, to formality, to the temple and its services and its ritual and its priesthood, the prophets had to warn them and say, God wants inward character. Now times have changed. The people in Babylon are done without a temple, without its ritual for 50 years. Without its services, without the priesthood, in a sense, they're done without it all. And in fact, the people had now come to see that the inward was important. That was the great lesson the Jews learnt in exile, never lost it to this day. That the inward was more important, in fact, than the outward. They'd done without a temple for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years since. They learnt that first lesson right back in, in, in the exile in Babylon. So you see, they felt, after all, these folk, it's the inn. Well, we've done 50 years without the temple. We've done 50 years without Jerusalem. Surely it's the inward thing that matters. But you see, that, if that had been absolutely true and genuine, I don't suppose the Lord would have had such an argument with them. But was it? It was just a cover-up for something very much different to inward and spiritual character. It was a cover-up really, for their own lethargy and apathy and coldness of heart. So really, they had not 
sufficient interest to really rebuild the temple. They hadn't got the sufficient interest to overcome the difficulties, to take hold of the Lord in faith, and to go on. So when the official opposition began, the opposition began and finally it ended in an official stoppage of the work, they were glad to let it go. And for 16 years, the site of God's house was just left in ruin. Now it's very interesting because in their, their own circumstances did not improve. Now this is the interesting thing. You would have thought that now stopping all that work on the foundation and the house and everything else, having much more time for themselves, much more time for their families, much more time for their businesses, or their circumstances would prove. Well, improve. Well, of course they did. They had lovely homes now. They had sealed houses. And a little later on we shall discover just how lovely those houses were. But in fact, their actual conditions from day to day did not improve at all. And that's exactly what Haggai points out. They were more weary than ever after the 16 years. They had blight, they had famine, they had shortages on every side. They said they've earned wages to put it into a bag with holes in it so that it all runs out. It just didn't seem worthwhile. You see, they were more tired than ever. Now, it's a very strange thing. I know sometimes people say, I don't feel like I can go to such and such a meeting. I'm too tired. So they stay away and they feel more tired than ever. Then usually they cut out another gathering and then a strange thing happens. They feel more tired than ever. Do you understand what happened? It is quite remarkable. It's always the same. The less you are a God, the more trouble you have in your own circumstances. Those that honor me, I will honor. When we put first things first, the way may be difficult, but God is with us. When we don't put first things first, the way is still difficult in the end. We may improve in all kinds of ways, we may get all the material things we want, and yet there is still within us that, that deep sense of inner emptiness and dissatisfaction, and that awful sense of weariness. Oh, there's one very great difference. The Lord's not there. Because there is an answer to weariness when we're in the work of the Lord. We've got to find that answer, but it's there. So it had become a very common phrase. So common that it was a little sort of um, catchphrase that was bandied about. It's not time to build the Lord's house. Everyone said it to one another, you see. Whenever the matter came up, oh, do you think it's time to build the house? It's not time. Every time anyone saw the thing, they said, oh, it's not time, it's not time. And evidently, they, some scholars believe they even had scriptural authority for it. Some of them tried probably to trace the 70 years, not from when it actually began, but from another point. And so they said, oh, no, no, it's not God's time, it's not God's time, 70 years, not up yet. We've got time to wait. Now it is this, you see, that, that, uh, that Haggai saw. You see, although it was not time to build God's house, it was evidently quite time to build their own. And that they got on with, with full steam and plenty of energy. They put all their energy and everything else into their own families, into their own houses, into their own businesses, and built it all up. But they were more empty and more weary 
and more unsatisfied than ever. And it was just at that point that the prophet Haggai suddenly and dramatically steps onto the scene. As far as we know, his ministry only lasted four months. If this is a record of his actual works, then he was one of the briefest speakers known in history. But he was like a bomb. He just went up, up, went off in a situation and blew the thing sky high. It wasn't very emotional. It wasn't very poetic. That he was brief, to the point, and factual. But with one or two sharp death digs, he exposed the whole thing as a fallacy. Now it's very, very interesting that he that he dynamites the deceptions of God's people. They deceive themselves. You know, we all deceive ourselves. It's not God's time, we say. It's not God's time. It's just a cosy little phrase. Especially if it is God's time. In fact, it's not God's time. It's not God's time. So we can do all other kinds of things while it's not God's time. Deception. He dynamites it. He dynamites their excuses. No doubt they've got the most marvellous excuses for why they couldn't be here and why they couldn't put the law first on that and why they couldn't give the proper time to their responsibilities in God's house, all that kind of thing. They had marvellous excuses, but the whole thing was dynamited by the prophet Haggai. just went up. Gone. And uh, their conceptions too, they went sky high. You know, sometimes we can hide in inward spiritual character. We talk about inward spiritual character as if there's no need of anything else as long as we're, we're just, you know, as long as we've got the spiritual character of the Lord. My dear friends, if we've got the inward spiritual character of the Lord, then we're living stones that are being built together. It's as simple as that. Otherwise the thing's false. <coughs> it's just false. It's a thing of our own making. Plenty of it in the world. I can take you some Buddhists that are sweet and humble. We've got some inward spiritual character of the same type that is prevalent among some Christians. Jehovah's Witnesses, Spiritualists, quite a lot of others. No true spiritual character is always in keeping with God's word. It can be judged by God's word. You see? Here it is. Haggai comes in. What happens? And this is the thing that's so often the difference between us in the 20th century and those of the 5th century, 6th century BC. What happened? It says the people were obedient. What took to the word of the Lord? And this is the interesting. When they were obedient, the Spirit of the Lord stirred up their spirit to fulfill the word of God. As soon as they were obedient, as soon as they took the word of God, as soon as they were, as they, as it were, received it into their hearts and meditated upon it and, and were obedient to it instead of just rebelling or fighting it or evading it, they went back, as it were, I'm sure, to their own homes, their lovely homes, and they thought it all out for the Lord. And a great change came about, and the work recommences in 520.
as Haggai and Zechariah begin to minister with their help and encouragement, the work recommenced in four years after 16 years of lying waste, the house was rebuilt and completed in only four years because the Spirit of the Lord came upon an obedient and repentant people. Only four years and the thing was done and this is the wonderful thing to me the, the top stone was put into place with those shouts of grace. I understand now a little more why it was grace, grace in those days. I should think with a history like that, when they saw the top stone going, they only had one thing they could say, and that was grace. If it hadn't been that Haggai and Zechariah had come at the right time, the house would still not have been built. But Zechariah prophesied, he said, Zerubbabel, you've laid the foundation of this house. Your hands shall complete it. And he said, the top stone shall go into its place with shouts of grace, grace unto it. In four years that prophecy was fulfilled. And I can imagine that in amidst that great multitude of people all standing around the temple, they watched the final stone go into place. And my, mustn't there have been a shout. But it wasn't a shout of glory. It was a shout of grace. And I believe, really, in the end, that is the most comforting thing of all to us this evening. God has a great purpose. That purpose is bound up with the Lord Jesus Christ supremely. The Lord Jesus Christ here as head. And with his body, the church. What has happened to the church? You've only got to read the book of Haggai to see it's got a lot to say to us in our day about the ruined state of God's own children, of his people, of his church, of his dwelling place, of his house. What should we do? This book has got the answer. Here from the background of the prophet, I trust you begin to see a little bit of what it meant, that answer. And he came to them. Be strong, said Haggai. Be strong and work. Why did he say that? Did he mean you just to throw your old natural energy into it? No, not at all. He meant this, look here, you, you folk. You set up an altar. You know something of the cross. You cleared the foundation. You know something of Christ as the basis of your life together. Now get on. Be strong and work. Get on with the job. And the Lord will be with you. The Lord will be with you. So, a little later, perhaps, in the Lord's will, we'll take the rest of the book. But that's just a little in the background.